This podcast is brought to you by XChem Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Hatch, where we interview the latest startups in and around Cambridge and Boston. I'm Heidi Legg with TheEditorial.com. Tonight at Venture Cafe at the Cambridge Innovation Center, we interview David Rose, a serial entrepreneur, author, and instructor at the MIT Media Lab. CEO of Ditto Labs, David's new book, Enchanted Objects, focuses on the future of the Internet of Things and how these technologies will impact the ways we live and work. Thank you. The first thing I'd like to know is about uh, enchanted objects. I love that term. We often see hashtag along Twitter, the Internet of Things. Um, enchanted objects is sort of a softer, more feminine word, uh, sort of alluring. Is your goal to sort of soften technology in our lives? My, certainly my goal is to humanize technology in our lives. Um, I feel like Internet of Things describes sort of uh, the broadening of interfaces, but I think you know, ideally we want technology that, you know, delights us and that uh, satisfies sort of fundamental human desires that we've all had forever, like the desire to be omniscient or to uh, make or to easily transport ourselves from place to place or the desire to make new things in an effortless way. Um, so I think Enchanted Objects, for me, sort of sets a high bar for designers to make things not only that uh, are sentient, you know, or that are internet connected, but also that uh, that enchant you, you know, that do something for you. From a very early um, time in your career, you were in the tech space with Viant uh, as one of the early launch pads, and you've been a serial entrepreneur with Vitality and Ambient and Napdito. Um, but your original study was at a very prestigious liberal arts school. Uh, do you think that there's uh, more room for the liberal arts and humanities in technology, and has that been a hard thing to integrate? Um, I really love, um, I don't know how many of you went to liberal arts schools, but I feel like it, it gave me uh, a broad uh, base uh, sort of training that, that helped me adjust to a shifting technology landscape that you know, where the, the disciplines that I've pursued over the last 20, 20 years, like none of them really existed when I was in school. Like I couldn't have taken courses in, in <coughs> multimedia, which was the thing that I did first doing museum exhibit designs. Uh, I was interested in either teaching physics or becoming an architect, and I did a lot of informational interviewing and, and <laughs> sort of learned from people in those fields that those were in many ways sort of mature categories, and they all encouraged me to, to like find something sort of halfway in the middle, something that involves the arts but also involves technology, and for me early on that was uh, working on museum exhibit design, and that was a space that was both about learning and education but also about um, making something with very expensive silicon graphics machines uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, where an, ex an exhibit could afford fifty dollars or $100,000 of technology and you could sort of play in the future of what, what might be in our, on our phones later, later in life. Uh, so, I don't know, I, I feel like uh, being, uh, being interested in philosophy and religion and uh, all the things that liberal arts teach you is a way to sort of prepare for a... Um, a very dynamic technology shifting landscape. I know Harvard is working very hard to encourage their students here in Cambridge to try and integrate more liberal arts into their studies. 
Is MIT trying to do the same thing? I don't know. I, the, I, I don't really have a purview all of, over all of MIT. I teach at the Media Lab, and that's a place that, that attracts these bizarre kids that, um, you know, <laughs> sort of like they're a musician and they can code, or they're a sculptor and they can code, or whatever they are. So it's sort of a naturally um, uh, sort of non-denominational place. As a researcher and instructor at the Media Lab, you're in the Tangible Media Group. Um, what are the latest tangible user interfaces we should expect to see as consumers? What are you guys playing with over there? Uh, mostly what we're playing with is things that aren't pixels. You know, things that don't display data like, as in ways that we're used to displaying data. So, so the most interesting things there are things that uh, are shape-shifting or um, that uh, change in terms of their haptics or the sense of touch. Uh, I have students that are working on, let's see, this semester one of the most provocative ideas was um, a material that could be pumped with like an air pump that would change its bumpiness over time. So you could put it on a door handle so that if somebody's sleeping in that hospital room, you'd sort of feel it before you, before you turn the handle. Or um, one, of the, one of the products that I, uh, that's in the book is this um, set of wallets that we did for Bank of America. And the goal was to, uh, they're called proverbial wallets, the goal was to help people understand how they're doing against their mon monthly budget uh, without, you know, without sending them a, a text message. So this, this wallet has a variable resistance hinge in it, so as you're blowing through your monthly budget, it just gets like, harder, harder and harder to open. Um, and, and the other one puffs up, like as if you were, felt a roll of cash in your pocket. So it has like a, a again, a little air pump. You can really like feel the paycheck as it comes in. I mean, those are useful and fun, and I love a lot of the Ambient products. I love the Orb. Um, but where will we see the next breakthrough in lifestyle products? Because the smartphone has just been a, a crazy boom in the way we live and how we live our lives. Do you, can you look in that crystal orb and tell us what you think is going to be the next ubiquitous product? Um, well, I tried to in the book. I made this little poster that I should have brought for all of you, but it's it tries to sort of organize Internet of Things objects based on fundamental human drives, like the drive for omniscience to be all-knowing, or the drive for telepathy to sort of know the mind of someone else, or the desire for safekeeping to be protected, uh, or immortality, or teleportation, or expression. And I don't know, it seems like a lot of these categories are growing pretty quickly in parallel. Like if you take the uh, like the watch category, the sort of like glanceable information on your wrist, like that's that's going to be the breakout category of the year, right? At least. <laughs> but isn't it kind of already there with everybody wearing their watches and counting their steps and that sort of thing? I mean, what's the, what else is there coming? Like, I saw the trash can. I think can, Apple I like believes it. it's going to be the next big category <laughs> in terms of watches. Um, I mean, I've, I've been sort of sequentially taking apart everyday objects in my house in order to, to try to sort of push on what the boundaries of where technology might sort of pop up next. So I did a trash can that knows that looks with a camera at what you throw out and then automatically reorders it from Amazon. Um, and it gives you shit if you order things that are uh, that bad aren't locally made or that are bad for your health. <laughs> or, you know, tries to, tries to like, recommend a, a change. Um, uh, I embedded like Google Maps in a coffee table. I embedded uh, Skype in a cabinet in a cabinet for my for my kid. Um, I mean, I'm I'm intrigued with like all. Like all the things, that, all the ordinary things that are all around us, and how we could embed just a, like a little bit of 
sense into those everyday things. I was just in the Venture Cafe speaking to someone about Google Glass, and they were saying, you know, everybody said Google Glass was going to be the game changer. Now everyone's kind of like, oh, maybe Google Glass isn't really going to happen. So I, you know, I really looked at someone like you, and I know a lot of us do, and people are here in the room for that reason. You know, what's it going to be? So if you had to it's bet on this little bingo Glass. board, <laughs> if you're going to bet on your bingo board here. Uh, you know, do you, you want to make a bet? Are you ready to make a bet on something? On the breakout product? Yeah, the breakout product. I think there's going to be a company that reinvents the thermostat, and I think that's going to be a big... Oh, I guess I'm so here. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, we all have those. <laughs> that's right. Um, I don't know, for the next, for the very next uh, connected thing, I mean, I think I'm really intrigued by clothing, and especially clothing that can tell us something smart about our bodies. I mean, like washability is sort of, a, sort of an issue. But this, there's another, there's a, a company in, uh, do you know this company called uh, Rest Devices that's that's doing this respiration sensitive wow. uh, onesie for a baby. Certainly integrating um, uh, you know, sensors that can that can understand what our affect is, like whether we're stressed or whether we're calm. I, I think there's a huge, I think most of us in this room feel stress and most of us maybe want some, some passive, uh, soft way of understanding What's our our own emotional state, so we can be more reflective of that, and maybe um, uh, do something about it in those times of, of high stress. I personally, as I looked through your different products, um, I gravitated to the Pandora chair. I think that's a really interesting product. Is that a product that's easily accessible, or is that just still in the test lab? It was just a it was just a, a prototype. The, the idea was in office environments, people oftentimes like look for these little moments of respite throughout the day. So. Why not make a recliner even more uh, respiteful, uh, even more reclining by uh, embedding <laughs> by embedding a tilt sensor in the chair, so that the more you lean back, the more the the slower the beats per minute uh, stations it, it selects from Pandora. I was um, way into it. Well, music, it's going to chill out. With yeah, that's right. Although I think for each of these things, you sort of have to examine like what's the what's the cycle of purchase? Like, how often do people buy? Fridges or chairs or trash cans or or watches and um, and how eager will they be to you know give up their their old one and, and adopt a new one? So I think that's sort of the business the business model question there. So much of the things you've touched going back to 1997 with the Ofolio patented online photos um, are about getting to the market first. How much pressure do you put on yourself as an inventor and designer on being first to market? That top of mind. Less and less, <laughs> I feel like I feel like the perennial mistake that most of most of us entrepreneurs make is market timing, and the mistake we usually make the mistake on the too early side because once we once we start reading about a market and thinking about a market and examining the market, like we have an idea and then we find evidence because we're looking really hard for that evidence that it's a that it's a big idea and its time has come and we find it couple of competitors and we turn, we end up being a little bit nervous because we found one or two competitors but we're, we're usually and I've I've always been just way too early to, to markets before before the wave breaks so, so how do you capitalize on that to people in the startup space who are here with us at CIC how do they capitalize or slow that down what's your advice uh, uh, I guess my thing is like if you think you have the next best thing idea um, don't be afraid to share it because usually the problem isn't in someone else stealing it but the problem is you're too early and you probably need alliances and you need uh, you need other brands to help you drive create a new market so I mean when I did the, the internet 
uh, connected furniture. I intentionally picked big brands and attached, you know, I, I didn't say it's a photo sharing coffee table. I said, it's a Facebook coffee table. Like I just in order to get an idea in people's heads, it's an Amazon trash can. It's a Skype cabinet. Like it's easier for you all to understand those concepts. If I use the sort of monikers that people are familiar with. And you partner with them to be able to do that or you just use it as a descriptor? Well, in this case, I just use it as a descriptor, but my advice to entrepreneurs is like, go partner with the biggest brands if you can um, and give away um, uh, a lot of revenue if you like, because the challenge isn't the the taking um, a large share of the pie, the challenge is moving an idea out into the market. Distribution. Yeah. Um, I've usually found it really useful to go and reach out to competitors and talk about challenges and have a therapy session with them. I remember um, when we first launched Ambient Devices, uh, it was CES and it was like um, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and one of the other companies was called Violet, they were a French company, and they made a internet-connected, Wi-Fi-connected, color-shifting lamp. And they were oh so French and cool. Yeah, and uh, the founder was named Rafi, and he later came out with a internet-connected rabbit. Do you remember that one? Violet uh, uh, Nabistag was the name of was the name of the internet-connected rabbit. It had two ears that would that would change based on like you could control your rabbit, and somebody else had a rabbit, and their ears would be synchronous with your your ears, and it would have like its its belly would tell you the weather through uh, voice, and you know it had like radio stations that it would talk. Like it was way too early, it was way right, too early, right, but, right. but we had like an Internet of Things conference at a bar at, at CES, and like there were only three of us, <laughs> and it was very lonely. <laughs> but, but you know, we were all too early. But it was a way to talk about distribution relationships, and uh, you know, wh- whether there was a reoccurring revenue stream that could be associated, a subscription service associated with these devices, and uh, we, I think, we became each other's fans, and would often press, would often pass press opportunities back and forth because, you know, more, in a nascent industry, sort of more education is what you need. Anne Morris, who we're interviewing at our big event for the editorial on February 4th, she's, uh, I think, just an incredibly smart entrepreneur. And I remember she said to me once that more people in your market is a sign that you're on to the right idea, that there's there's power in more in your market. Yeah, yeah. How many people do you think have the energy joule or the orb? Do you have those numbers? I know that the Orb's um, biggest year was, uh, we sold 10,000 units of the Orb, and I know that um, I'm no longer involved with ambient devices, but uh, uh, Pratesh, I met with Pratesh a couple of weeks ago, and he said they, they sold a, um, a very large deal to a, 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 a Canadian energy company that also deployed tens of thousands of, of energy jewels. Um, can I show a picture of the energy jewel? Yeah, please. So as you remember, the orb changed colors so you could track things like uh, pollen counts and uh, wind speed or first derivative barometric pressure or whether your garden needed, you know, all with just a single color. And now the company makes this, this product, which helps you, which is glanceable on one, on one side. It's sort of like a chiclet and glows different colors based on how much energy your home is consuming, how much electricity, and also the price that you're paying for those markets that have dynamically priced energy. Um, but then they also did, I think, a smart thing by, um, they made an ugly underside <laughs> that uh, has a screen that shows you the drill down details of you know, exactly how much you're paying per kilowatt hour. Um, and I think this sort of satisfies this need that most people have of both having 
of both seeing the top, the tip top of a glanceable device, meaning the sort of answering the question about is it important enough for me to pay attention to this information right now, and then also getting the details of well, why is it like what's happening that, that I should pay attention to it. Um, I, re I really liked your Google doorbell, which again, I don't know if that's something that we can buy or if that was another one of your ideas. Just, that was just a prototype. That was a pro I love that idea to know when people are coming home and where they are in the traffic. Yeah, this was, the, uh, she's speaking out of, about a product that was inspired by, who remembers we the Weasley clock? <laughs> the Weasleys had a big family, and so Mrs. Weasley had uh, this sort of grandfather clock in the kitchen that where each hand of the clock was a, was a member of the family, and they could tell like who's at work and who's in the forest and who's at the tailor and who's at more immortal peril. Um, and uh, so this is, so I made an audio-only interface because I grew up listening to Peter and the Wolf, the, the Prokofiev thing. This is a story where every character has a ringtone. So in my family, every, every family member has a ringtone and you hear them come home. So as they break a geofence at 10 miles or one mile out, you sort of, like, you can hear that my daughter's on her way home, or my son's on her way home, or my wife's on her Sometimes this is handy for lots of reasons. Who doesn't want that? Yeah. Um, in your book, you also tell us that uh, you'll use technology to channel our desire for creative expression and enhance human relationships. But what about the isolation we get from technology and the loss of human relationships? Well, um, this is a it's a big space. question about technology isolation. I mean, I guess I... I'm hoping that we can all make objects and, and services that bring people closer together rather than isolate us. Um, I mean, a lot of the a lot of these objects for you know telepathy for connecting two people are really about sort of reducing the friction between my kids talking to my parents or um, me having a sense of that they're oh, that they're safe um, and on their way home. Um, and I hope that they can. I I hope that we'll have. More of a more of a sense of of sort of lightweight information that won't be distracting, but that will um, sort of enhance human relationships rather than cause isolation. As these enchanted objects come um, to know our needs and our desires, they're going to be smarter. We're going to probably have to do less. How do you see humans staying in the loop? I think for lots of things, we don't need to be in the loop. I mean, a lot of I mean, a lot of the automation features that you get with a with a Nest or with a um, other things that take care of you. I mean, I I just installed um, some blinds in my house that sort of magically rise and set with the sun. Like they sort of know where we are in the world and they know what time what day of year it is, and so they just come up at the right time and they go down at the right time. And I never really need to be involved in shade in shade automation, you know? Um, so what, but, the you... do, but the things that I'm excited about being involved in are things that uh, like are, are about being generative. You know, I want Guitar Hero for the cello. You know, I want, I want things that make um, creating and making easier. Like, I want more internet-connected Legos and Lincoln Logs and um, pens where you can gesture a pattern and make a sculpture easily and things that sort of give us some scaffolding and some support so that we can feel confident in being generative. So the art for you isn't in the mundane. The art for you is having the time for the mundane. Is that fair Yeah, to say? we all want our robots just to, you know, keep us safe and clean our homes, not, not um, uh, so that we can have time to be, to, to be generative. Did you work with David Edwards? Because he's opened the Art Science Cafe here in Cambridge, and he seems to be in a lot of these spaces. Is that, have you guys crossed over at all? I've seen him at a couple conferences, but no. 
not working together. Yeah. Is there a public opinion you'd like to change right now in your space that the general public isn't getting? I, I do want to change a public opinion around privacy. You know, I do, I, I think the, the issue of all of these objects collecting all of this data about our lives, I think sort of on a visceral level freaks people out. And I, you know, I do, I think the, inter, the I do think we need to use appropriate security and protocols so that, so that data doesn't leak into the wrong hands. But I think most people sort of underestimate the power of sharing rather than, uh, and they seem to be sort of freaked out by the general notion that something is tracking us. How do you think and, they didn't make people feel safer about that? Well, I invented this the product called the GlowCap, which people know, right. um, which you know helped helped remind you to take medication. But the big you know the big thing that happened because of the way that this shared data was that um, people were more likely to take their med medication not just because it would blow or make a sound, but because it connected their behavior to a loved one. So every week you'd get data about how your dad is doing, and he'd get data about how you're doing. So by opening up this sort of window of accountability between you and another non-professional caregiver, you were just so much more likely to do the thing because you knew someone who cared about you, you knew you were on the right track, and they knew you were on the right track. So I feel like the potential for sharing this in, in selective ways has a much more much more potential for behavior change and and for goodness in the world rather than just for what what happens if it gets out that you know my insurance company finds out that I'm not taking my meds and they raise my rates and you know all of these services are opt in so you don't have to share data with your family you don't have to share data with the pharmacy to get automatic refills you don't have to share data with your doctor but there's that potential there for for sharing a, li a little bit of critical information about you know lifestyle and I think that has potential for good. It's something you guys are going to have to work on because when I interviewed George Church, he's trying to get us all to give up our genome because that's the way they're going to be able to do more research mm. and do really powerful things like wipe out malaria by taking out a gene of the mosquito. I mean, he, these are powerful things he'll be able to do for all of us for longevity and health, but people still have this fear of that their genome being out there on, you know, for public consumption or for the one rogue person. As much as we can mock and say, oh, yeah, those people that worry, well, you know, my mother worries, and there are a lot of people like my mother out there. Yeah, so I tend to think, I, I think there's a, we do have to those, argue for it. I think there, the, there's more worry about um, Big Brother and viruses creeping into your glow cap and spreading into your, you know, <laughs> nest. Like, the, the, the less technical the audience, the more misconception they have about sort of the, the viruses are going to jump between all of these objects. And it's hard to design these things. It would be, like, impossible to design a virus for a glow cap. I can tell you from the power of the processor, it's impossible. Right. But, so, um, I mean, I, Google has been reading my email for 10 years. Every email that I write for 10 years. And Netflix has been looking at all movies that I watch. And Amazon knows everything that I've purchased. And all three of those haven't been able to do anything useful. Right, and now your garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> now your garbage can's going to know what I'm eating and not right, recycling right. Cambridge, which is going like, to be horrible. I can sort of like dare them all to like they can have like, my location information. They can have everything. Just like do something useful. I worry about my kids' eyes when they're playing Clash of the Clans on a small screen, and I worry about my hand always on my <coughs> smartphone. Um, do you think about that as a designer, and do you see that changing? I do see that changing. I think your kids should play Clash of the Clans with like 
wooden swords rather than on the smartphone. <laughs> you know, I think the more that we can sort of get out of these screens that are monopolizing our attention and into using the full dexterity and the full dimensionality of our bodies, like that would be much, much better. Um, so I, like, I think about the expression that we put into musical instruments or, you know, playing, like, if anybody tried to play an organ, like, it involves four, like, all four of your limbs, and it involves a lot of subtlety and a lot of dexterity, and, like, I feel like interfaces should improve in that dimension, where, um, like the leap, which is a gestural controller, so you just sort of get a sense, you have a lot more subtlety in the interface, and you can use all the subtlety that we're, you know, given by God or evolution. Well, we're really excited to see you design more things for us to use all of our limbs and body parts and minds. Um, I thank you for sitting with us, and maybe you can just tell us the thing you're most hopeful about with what you're doing right now. Um, the thing that I'm working on right now that I'm most hopeful about is um, I really think advertising is broken and would love to find ways for uh, what naturally happens between two people to happen um, more uh with less friction in the world, which is, you know, you, you're wearing a beautiful dress. I'm actually not a cross-dresser, but, you know, if I were, I would be interested in her dress. And I see, and I see friends' photos at beaches, and I'm inspired to go on beach vacations. And I see people at awesome restaurants in Cambridge, and I say, oh, how do, like, how do you get a table at Craigie on Main? And so I'm really interested in the peer-to-peer -peer recommendation space, um, and especially at the, because that's happening through photos. So with Ditto Labs, we're really trying to make that peer-to-peer -peer recommendation. It's almost the next phase of e-commerce, like to be able to um, not only recommend things through photos, which is already happening on Facebook, but to be able to take action, to be able to say, I want to go to that ball game, or I want to go to that beach, or I want to you know, do the things my friends are doing. And, and I think hopefully that's the end of advertising and more about peer-to-peer -peer marketing, peer-to-peer -peer recommendations, and peer-to-peer -peer commerce. It's That's really fun to have you here. Thank Thanks. you for your time, because you're a big thinker in our area, and um, I know we're all really excited to see what you're going to do next. Thanks, Heidi. This podcast is brought to you by XChem Pharmaceuticals.